Hi, we want to invite you to our Night of Praise in Prattville. It's at the Marriott Conference Center, October 26th at 6 o'clock. We are excited about a powerful evening of praise and worship through song as we enter into God's presence. Child care will be available for birth through four years old. So mark your calendars, you don't want to miss it. Good morning, everyone. I'm John Schmidt. I'm the senior pastor here at Centerpoint Fellowship. I want to welcome you to this first installment in our series entitled Living as a Believer in an Unbelieving World. We're going to be looking at lessons for the next month or so uh, from the part of the Bible that we call, in the New Testament, that we call 1 Corinthians. It was one of the letters that Paul wrote to some Christians who lived in the ancient city of Corinth. And Corinth was a place that, uh, where God took Paul to go start a church in probably the most unlikely place you would ever want to start a church. Corinth could have hung the sign out in front, Sin City, on the way in, and nobody would have thought twice about the sign. Uh, Corinth was a major seaport, a major hub for merchandising and travel in the world of the, of the day, of the ancient world. It was also the home for uh, the worship of Aphrodite, or the Roman version of the Greek goddess would have been Venus, uh, the goddess of love, the goddess of pleasure, the goddess of lust. And so there were at least a thousand prostitutes that were maintained in the city of Corinth as part of the worship of the goddess of love. And so uh, it's, uh, Plato referred to prostitutes in their day as Corinthian girls, because that's how they would have grown up in Corinth and learned to be prostitutes. Uh, there was a proverb of the day that said, not every man should make the voyage uh, to Corinth, or not every man's ready for the voyage to Corinth because it took a special kind of guy. This was a place where you could easily be corrupted. It was to that city, a city known for its commerce and its wealth and its immorality, that God took Paul and he started a church there. A church. Bible-believing Christians. And all of a sudden they found themselves face-to-face with a whole lot of people who didn't share their convictions about Christ at all. And what did Paul write to them? Well, the next few weeks we're going to be looking at that four or five things that he said to them, and they'll be greatly encouraging to us too, because uh, whether we like to admit it or not, we live in a time where, hey, we can be squarely at odds with our culture. And our culture can be saying, ah, you don't need to pay attention to all this, when the Bible says, oh yeah, you do. And how are we supposed to live as believers in an unbelieving culture? How do you live that out? Well, Paul had some good advice for the Corinthians, and it's good advice for us as well. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll jump right in. Lord, I want to thank you for the opportunity to study your word. It's our guide in all matters of faith and practice. And Lord, we'd like to know how to live as Christians, as believers in an unbelieving world. So Lord, I pray that you'll speak and move me out of the way. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. Installment number one, there's an outline inside your bulletin entitled, Biblical Wisdom Seems Foolish to Unbelievers. Biblical Wisdom Seems Foolish to Unbelievers. If I'm going to be a believer, then I need to understand this, that a lot of the things that the Bible teaches are going to seem foolish to people who don't share my convictions. If you need a pen, by the way, to take notes, just raise your hand. One of our ushers will be glad to bring one to you. I want to welcome the folks who are worshiping by video over at Pike Road and Wetumpka and Cloverdale. We're glad you're uh, worshiping with us as well. But it's important to understand that um, there are going to be people who don't share our convictions at all. And, and I want to give you a couple of reasons why. First of all, the message of the cross 
point one on your outline, the message of the cross seems foolish to unbelievers. The message seems foolish. I mean, we live in a day where people prize uh, power and uh, lots of possessions, where we prize pleasure, and then all of a sudden we're coming in proclaiming the gospel, the good news that God became a human being, just in, but just in not an outstanding human being, somebody who would come to suffer and die, nobody of great power or significance in the world's eyes. I and mean, that's what we claim about Jesus. Well, it sounded odd to the people of Paul's day, day too. The message just didn't seem to resonate. The message of the cross is foolish. This is 1 Corinthians 1.18. It's foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it's the very power of God. As the scriptures say, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the, in, of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters? Well, God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. Since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he's used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It's foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven, and it's foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. But to those who are called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans, and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest human strength. And you and I need to be forewarned. I mean, being forewarned, Paul felt like, was being forearmed. Then we go out and tell people about our faith. We can expect that there are certain people we're going to talk to. This is going to sound crazy to them. He pointed out, there's a note in your outline here, the Jews wouldn't believe it seemed foolish to them. They were always asking for signs because when we proclaimed that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus didn't act like the victorious Messiah they expected. And if you circle the words, didn't act like... I mean, Jesus didn't act like the Messiah they expected. In John chapter 6, we find Jesus talking to some people that he had, just the night before, he had fed them all dinner with a little boy's lunch. 5,000 people. It was miraculous. Well, the next day, you'd think, wow, they'd be convinced to follow him and trust him then. Well, the next day they did follow him, and they just wanted to know what was for dinner the next day. In fact, they came up to him, and they said, show us a miraculous sign if you want us to believe in you. What can you do? We did fish and chips last night. What's on the menu tonight? And that was really it. They wanted another sign. And Jesus goes, no, you, you're getting this all wrong. And he wanted them to put their faith in him as their Messiah who could save, us from, save them from their sins, and they left him. Even when Jesus was dying on the cross for us, one of the criminals, this is Luke 23, one of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed, so you're the Messiah, are you? Well, prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. And he couldn't have summed it up any better what the Jews, why the Jews had problems with Jesus and proclaiming him as the Messiah and the gospel as good news. Jesus didn't act like the Messiah. The Messiah was supposed to come ride a white horse with a big sword. He was supposed to be, he was of the ancestry, or David was in his ancestry, so if he was supposed to be of the house and the line of David, then he would come in like David had killed Goliath. Well, this Messiah would come in and set them free from Rome, and they'd establish a new empire, and it would be the Israeli empire, and they'd all be in charge. And Jesus came in and he forgave people of their sins and spent time with lepers and widows and people who weren't important at all. And what are you doing, Jesus? You're wasting time. And Jesus goes, no, my kingdom isn't like that. And so they were completely disappointed with him. They were looking for signs. And Jesus didn't deliver. He didn't act like a Messiah. Can you imagine living in a time when people would be angry at God just because he didn't give them everything they wanted? Can you imagine that? I think I can imagine that. We do it all the time. 
Well, God didn't give me the job. God didn't give me the right boyfriend or girlfriend. God didn't take care of everything I wanted. Somebody else got the promotion. I'm not going to church anymore. Enough of that. I prayed about that three times. I spent like four minutes at least total in prayer. And God didn't come through, so I'm giving up on him. I'm not voting for him anymore. As if that's what it's about. We're supposed to vote on God? He doesn't want us to vote on whether he's God or not. He's God. He wants us to follow him. And here's the good news. The good news is that no matter who we are, no matter what we've done, he'll forgive us. If we come to him, he'll forgive us of all our sins. Wash them away. We can have a right standing with God. But see, if I'm not interested in being forgiven of my sins, if I'm interested in God doing tricks for me, if I'm not interested in a savior and I want a genie, well, Jesus didn't act right. Come on, Jesus. I mean, if you're going to be this Messiah, come in here and take charge. Let's get this thing going. And so the Jews reject him because he didn't act right. The Greeks thought the cross was foolish because they didn't believe in a bodily resurrection. I mean, they had great philosophers in that day. And they laughed at Christians talking about the bodily resurrection. I mean, you can't have miracles. What, you expect us to believe in that? When Paul went to Athens, he debated some of the philosophers there. And here's what Acts says about that. Paul also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers when he told them about Jesus and his resurrection. They said, what's this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas that he's picked up? What the heck is that? What do you mean, resurrection? People don't come alive again after they've died. If you die, you die. They didn't believe in eternal life. They believed only in the here and now. And if you can't prove it scientifically, it isn't true. Boy, can you imagine living in a world like that? We do. And you don't have to go far to find people who will mock Christianity and laugh at us. I remember it wasn't that long ago I had a conversation with a fellow, and that was his whole thing. He said, John, you seem like an intelligent enough guy. I mean, you can't seriously believe that somebody rose from the dead. I mean, you actually believe that Jesus really, literally rose from the dead. I do. I believe more than that. I believe he ascended to heaven. And he's literally sitting at the right hand of God the Father right now, interceding for us, and he's literally coming back real soon. I do. I literally believe that. And there are many people in our, and you don't have to go far. You can get on YouTube and anything by Bill Maher or Bill Nye, the science guy. It won't take you long before they get right into the whole business of how stupid it is to be a person of religion, especially a person of the Christian faith. It won't take you long. And there are many mockers and people today, just like there would have been in Corinth. And we are silly if we don't prepare ourselves for this. The message of the cross will sound foolish to them. It might sound foolish because that's not the way God should act. I mean, why do I need a Savior? I mean, I'm going to go and, and live life, and I'm going to do more good things than bad things. If I do more good than bad, then God lets me into heaven. Well, the Christian message isn't bad. Christian message is, hey, if you're weighed on a scale of good versus bad, we've all lost it already. We can never atone for all the bad things we've done. We're sinful people, every one of us. If every thought, every word, every wicked thing we've ever done was stacked against us, we could never atone for it. And that's why we need a Savior. And so we preach the cross. (coughs) We don't preach Jesus coming in and saying, hey, I'm going to recruit the strong and the beautiful and the people who get this thing right. 
which is why the religious leaders had a problem with him, because they thought they were doing it better than you and me. And Jesus said, no, I'm not coming here to reward people who think they're good enough. I'm coming to save people who need a Savior. Come to me. And if you're weary and your heart is tired of carrying your sin, come to Jesus. See, what's great about this, Paul was preparing them. We proclaim Christ. And there are some people who are going to reject the message. But there are other people, man, they have run that flag all the way up the flagpole already. They have really tried to find happiness by having lots of stuff. And it didn't bring happiness. They've really tried to find happiness by saying, if I can just get the promotion, if I could just be the head of the company, or if I could just be the department manager, then I would find significance. Only to find when they get that position, it comes with a whole lot of responsibilities they didn't know it came with. Can anybody relate to what I'm talking about here? Yeah. And so Paul is warning them. He's saying, hey, look, you're living there in Corinth. If you're going to be a believer in an unbelieving culture, understand the message isn't going to make sense to everybody. There's a note here, by the way. Paul also said this. God thinks our wisdom is foolish. The Greeks thought the message of the cross was foolish. The Jews thought the message of the cross was foolish. And God said, well, guess what? God's think, God thinks their wisdom is foolish. And God's smarter, so he wins. But he does. I mean, can you imagine this? I mean, I remember when uh, my kids were small. I remember one of my sons one time climbing up to the top of a, uh, a sliding board, and it was pretty tall. And uh, tell him, hey, buddy, you're not going to want to get up there by yourself. It's going to be too scary when you get up there. And it's like, no, I got it, I got it. And yanked his hand away. It's like climbing up. Are you sure? You know, you're going to be scared when you get up there. No, I'm good, I'm good. And he got up there and goes, Dad, I can't get down. Could you come help me? I said, no, you're fine. Just stay up there. No, I did, I did, I did not. I did not climbed up there. We went down together. I was not impressed with his wisdom. I was patient with him. Do you know that our Heavenly Father is the same with us? Here's what's good, though, is if you and I will proclaim the message, this is a life application here, you and I still need to teach the message of the cross, even if some people reject it. Because God is patient with us, and there's going to come a time, there's going to come a time when it's going to sink in for many people. Maybe not the first time they hear it. Maybe not the second time. Maybe not the 33rd time. But time number 34, bang, there it is. Somebody might be here today. It wouldn't be surprising to me at all today if today was the day for someone in this room right now where you've rejected this for a long time and you can't believe that we're talking about this now. And today's the day for you to come to Christ. No more excuses. And maybe this is the time for you. And it's been years. Your mom, your grandmother, people have been praying for you forever. Maybe today's the day when you go, I need a Savior. I mean, that happens all the time. I pray with people. I'll meet them in the middle of the week, and they go, something you said. <coughs> I've had friends after me. I've had other people after me on this. But it finally makes sense. I can't do this on my own, can I? Nope. When Paul was writing to Timothy, in 2 Timothy 4, he wrote these words, Timothy, preach the word of God. Be prepared whether the time is favorable or not. Patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching, for a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They'll follow their own desires and look for teachers or tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. Boy, that doesn't relate to us, does it? Oh my goodness, just get on the web anytime. You'll find people saying all kinds of crazy stuff about the Bible. Now, it's not true and you can't trust it. Or if you are going to read it, then read it this way, because when it says thou shalt not, it really means go ahead. And we'll find all kinds of stuff like that. 
And Paul was reminding Timothy, no, Timothy, preach the word. Can I encourage us? Even though there are people that are going to reject us, if you were here last week, you heard Shane Seegers, who uh, directs our multi-site ministry, so we can have extensions in Wetumpka and Cloverdale and elsewhere. Um, Shane and I were presenting how important it is to share our faith. And some of you might be thinking, well, well, you told us last week we knew about and share our faith, and now you're telling us that the message of the cross is going to seem foolish to a lot of people. Well, it will, but not to everyone. There are others who are being called, and they're going to understand it, and it'll change their lives. Jesus said this, God blesses you, this is to his disciples, God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you, to say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it, be very glad, for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. So the message of the cross is going to seem foolish to unbelievers. And for everything that we're talking about in this series here, we're going to be talking about biblical wisdom. You're going to see over the next few weeks, if you're with us, how God's understanding the way things ought to be and our understanding, a lot of times they're complete loggerheads. We don't agree at all with God in our culture. We think we have a better idea. And of course, that's dangerous thinking. You flip our outline over. Not only if we're going to live as unbeliever, as if we're going to live as believers in an unbelieving world, then we need to be prepared that the message will seem foolish. The message of the cross will seem foolish. But secondly, the messengers of the cross will seem foolish to unbelievers. You and me, not just foolish, foolish because we believe in it, but because we're not important enough. Listen to what Paul wrote about this in First Corinthians one. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to become, <clears throat> to shame those who are powerful. And God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and he used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. God has united you with Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God, and he made us pure and holy, and he freed us from sin. Therefore, as the scriptures say, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. And so there's a life application here. God wants to use ordinary people like us to be his messengers. The people in Corinth were going, well, if I'm going to live as a believer in an unbelieving society, I mean, the message sounds foolish, but not only that, but some people think I shouldn't be the one telling them anyway. I mean, who are you? They had lots of philosophers in that day who would travel around teaching. And here were these Christians like Paul that were preaching these things. And they go, what is this, what's this babbler trying to say? And many people felt like, well, yeah, I'm not well-educated enough. I mean, if God wants this message to get out, why doesn't he get somebody better than me? You and I could use the same excuse. Why doesn't he get somebody taller? Why doesn't he get somebody younger? Why doesn't he get somebody better educated? I don't have enough letters after my name. People won't listen to me. And Paul says, don't kid yourself. God loves to use ordinary people. He does. He loves to use ordinary people to get the message out because it'll show only again how mighty and powerful he is that he's not after impressing people with the world's wisdom. When Peter and John were arrested a few months after Jesus had ascended into heaven, they were arrested for doing a mighty miracle in Jesus' name and the people who had sentenced Jesus to death weren't happy with them because this was giving more glory to Jesus. And they're going, why do you keep insisting that we're, we're the ones responsible for his death? Well, they'd crucified him, that's why. But we don't want you to keep talking about Jesus. Quit teaching in his name. And how did you do this miracle? 
And they said, well, we did this miracle because the power of God was upon us, and we did it in the name of Jesus because Jesus is the only name by whom we can be saved. And Peter went on to say in Acts 4.13, the members of the council, or this is what they said about Peter and John, I'm sorry, the members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, for they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. Please circle the word ordinary, words ordinary men. They also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. Ordinary men. A few months, we're going to celebrate Christmas. And we all remember how Jesus was born of a virgin, the Virgin Mary. Mary was a young girl. No special pedigree that we know of. She wasn't wealthy or famous. She wasn't a super intelligent person, apparently. She was just ordinary. She was obedient and faithful. And a young girl who was startled when Gabriel came to her and said, Hail, Mary. And that had nothing to do with football, okay? <laughs> had everything to do with God choosing her and using her. Because God loves to use ordinary people to carry out his extraordinary work. And if you and I would embrace that, then we'd understand that, okay, it's not up to me. I'm not asking people to be impressed with me. I'm asking them to be impressed with a Savior who loves them so much that no matter who they are, no matter what they've done, he forgives them. That's why it can go out anywhere. That's why people were so offended that Jesus hung out with people who weren't important. He seemed to care a great deal for a woman caught in adultery. He seemed to care for a blind man, for a leper. Why would he care for all these people? Jesus, you should be courting dignitaries and famous people. If you're going to start a movement, you're going the wrong way. And Jesus goes, no, I came to save the least and the lost. And I came to suffer and die for them. You misunderstand me. There's a life application for us also. If we're not chosen because of our great pedigree or our great education or our great looks or whatever it is, then it's very important that we're careful how we live so we don't contradict our message. I mean, think about this. If we say, well, okay, God uses ordinary people to communicate the message, and that's his chosen means, well, then it's all the more important we don't contradict our message by the way we live. Peter wrote about this. He said, be careful how you live. Live among your unbelieving neighbors, and even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they'll see your honorable behavior, and they'll believe and give honor to God when he comes to judge the world. We read this last week when we were talking about sharing our faith. It's all the more important again this week when we understand, hey, we're just ordinary folks, well, then that's the most convincing thing about our message is the change that it brings about in us. When our neighbors, when our classmates, when our coworkers see us not returning anger for anger, but forgiving people, they'll notice. I mean, they will be impressed too. When they actually see us being kind and generous, when they're not, they'll remember that. When they actually see us living out our faith, wow. They go, hey, look, I don't know what's going on with you, but I don't have that quality of life, and I want that. And Paul says that's why God chooses ordinary people. You and I don't have to be the best athletes. We don't have to be Hollywood actors or actresses. We don't have to have five degrees or have been through seminary. We just have to be people who will be faithful. And so if I'm, going to be an if I'm going to be a believer living in an unbelieving society, that's what God wants. He wants me to be a messenger 
and count on him to do the convincing through a changed life. So that when I speak, my words will be taken seriously, not because of my credentials, other than the fact that I've been with Jesus, just like Peter and John. So Paul said, if you're going to be a believer in an unbelieving culture, in an unbelieving society, then you have to remember, first of all, that for a lot of people, the message is going to sound foolish. And for other people, the messenger, you are going to look foolish. You're not going to feel qualified. And here's why. This is point three. Because unspiritual people can't understand spiritual things. Unspiritual people can't understand spiritual things. It's kind of like being colorblind. I mean, I can't, if I'm colorblind, I can't tell what goes with what. I knew a guy once, his wife would dress him, and when his wife was out of town one time, he showed up, it was like, we all busted out laughing, your wife's out of town. It's like, how'd you know? Because you look like a clown, okay? I mean, (laughs) the guy had no sense of color. And his wife did some, she passed away before he did, and she did something really wonderful for him. She made tags on all of his clothes, kind of like the Garanimals things, the giraffe goes with the giraffe and other things. She stitched labels on them, so she said, after I die, I don't want people to remember you as the guy who can't dress himself, okay? And it was a really wonderful thing. But he had no ability to do that because he had no sensitivity to color. Do you realize that before you and I came to Christ and his Holy Spirit dwelt within us, we couldn't understand the things of God at all because we were spiritually dull and senseless? And Paul says, understand this, that God is working in the lives of people, but people who haven't gotten to that point yet, they're, just gonna, they're not going to get this. 1 Corinthians 2. <clears throat> now, no one can know a person's thoughts except that person's own spirit. And no one can know God's thoughts except God's own spirit. And we have received God's spirit, not the world's spirit, so we can know the wonderful things that God has freely given us. When we tell you these things, we do not use words that come from human wisdom. Instead, we speak words given to us by the Spirit, using the Spirit's words to explain spiritual truths. But people who aren't spiritual can't receive these truths from God's Spirit. It all sounds foolish to them, and they can't understand it, for only those who are spiritual can understand what the Spirit means. But we understand these things, for we have the mind of Christ. Here's the life application. Because we have the Holy Spirit in our lives, we can understand spiritual things and know God's will for our lives. We can. If you're sitting there thinking, well, John, but I haven't been to seminary and I'm not the most qualified person. I know God wants to use ordinary people, but how do I know that I'm saying the right thing? When you and I ask Christ into our lives and we study his word, his Holy Spirit comes into us, by the way, when we surrender our lives to him and he energizes God's word. In fact, the words jump off the page. Some of you have emailed me about this. They go, since I became a Christian, I used to think the Bible was this dull book that never made any sense. Now I read it, and it's like I can't get enough of it. Can anybody here relate to what I'm talking about? Anybody? My goodness, my wife and I were talking the other day. I was sharing with her some things that I had read in my devotional time and how much God had spoken to me. And she said, yeah, i got some other things that God wants you to fix too. Can I list those for you? And I was going, no, no. sharing my side right now. But the truth is, is that God speaks to us all the time and we can know the mind of Christ because God's Holy Spirit dwells within us. Now, I don't know what's going on inside of your head. You don't know what's going on inside of my head. By the way, there's not that much most of the time, okay? But I don't know what's going on in your mind because I'm not inside there and you're not inside my mind. But here's what's amazing. When we come to Christ, it's not just we believe some things about Christ. We have a relationship with him. And he places his Holy Spirit inside of us. 
When Christians say, I've asked Jesus in my heart, that's what we mean. That God's Holy Spirit has taken up residence inside of us. And he changes the way we think. Our conscience gets a supercharge. We read the Bible and the words jump off the page. Somebody speaks to us and we go, oh, that was a word of the Lord for me. Hopefully that's even happened this morning as we've been talking about this. I prayed at the beginning of this message that God would speak and move me out of the way. I do that every week, and God really does. He does. But there are people whose hearts are hardened. And as I said before, they haven't yet quite figured out the fact how desperate they are and how desperately in need of forgiveness they are. But one of these times when we present the gospel, one of these times when we tell them what God has shown us and we just proclaim it with honesty and sincerity, God opens their mind the same way he opened ours. And the scales fall from their eyes. Jesus promised this would happen. He told his disciples, look, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. John also wrote this, but if you, have re- if you have received the Holy Spirit, but you have received the Holy Spirit, and he lives within you, so you don't need anyone to teach you what's true, for the Spirit teaches you everything you need to know, and what he teaches is true. It's not a lie. So just as he has taught you, remain in fellowship with Christ. God's Holy Spirit lives inside of us, and so now we have access to the thoughts of God himself through the Holy Spirit. And we can have confidence that even though we may not have a, uh, a high education, even though we might not be the most beautiful people or the most talented people or the, most, the people that we think should be the ones presenting this to our neighbors or friends, we can tell them confidently, God loves you. God will forgive you for your sins. You don't have to carry around grief and shame anymore. If you call out to him, he'll hear you. I gave my life to Christ and he changed me and he made me brand new. He washed all my sins away. He lives inside of my heart. He's changed the way I think about things. He's given me a desire to follow him, the ability to understand him, and the power to live life like I always wanted to. Please come join in this. You're going to love this. You're going to love him. My friends, this is what God wants us to do. And Paul was saying, this is why it's so important to embrace this. The message might sound like foolishness, but it's because our world is so wrong. And we might not seem like the qualified messengers because our world values all kinds of things that aren't truly important. And we can have confidence not because we're so smart, but because God is so awesome. And he's placed his Holy Spirit inside of us so that people can know about him. One more life application. If you and I want to know more of God's thoughts, then we need to spend more time in God's Word. I hope that wasn't a trick answer. I hope that's abundantly clear. If I want to know more of God's thoughts, then I want to spend more time in God's Word. I mean, think about this. If I really, really, really want to know what God thinks about something, He's not hiding. Here's the way it works. God said, look, I've sent my Son into the world. He became human and spoke out loud and told you what I think about things. Throughout the centuries, I've sent angels, I've sent dreams, I've done miracles, I've spoken to people in many ways, and people have recorded those interactions. Christ's own words were recorded for us. Paul's teachings about this, prophecies about the future, they're all recorded for us in God's book. So not only do we have God's Holy Spirit living inside us, but we have God's word to guide us. 
And if we'd like to know more, well, God says, read it. 2 Timothy 3. All scripture is inspired by God. That means God breathed. And it's useful to teach us what's true and make us realize what's wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what's right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Many of you know that like, um, before I got into uh, being the pastor of this church, in the past I'd served a number of different functions or different levels of ministry. Uh, for a while I worked with high school kids, and uh, for a while I worked with young families. There was also a time in my ministry when I was a college minister. It was probably about 15 or 20 years ago, I'll never forget, I had, uh, there was a young man whose family had um, brought a young man home. He, he'd gone off to Tuscaloosa and enrolled and studied there for a year, and after a year came home with a 0 0.9 GPA, and his mom and dad said, yeah, that's enough, we're not paying for that, okay? And so you're going to come home and work for a while and get your head on straight, and part of your punishment, too, is you're going to have to go meet with John Schmidt for about six times. I mean, I'm not making this up. How would you like to be known as the punishment, okay? I mean... <laughs> That's happened to me more than once. You're grounded, and you're going to have to go see John Schmidt. No, not John Schmidt. Okay, okay. <laughs> oh, my goodness. How horrible. Uh, anyway, he had to meet with me. We got him involved in a small group while he was at home. So he was spending the fall semester uh, in Montgomery. He got involved with a group of students there, was taking some classes locally, got, went on a mission trip, got involved in some service projects. Fast forward three months in or so. We go and grab a hamburger together, and we're talking. I said, well, what have you learned? And he said, well, I owe you an apology. He said, i got to tell you, when my mom and dad told me that I had to come home and I had to meet with you, I thought my life was over. I'm just feeling better by the minute. You know, I'm just like, oh, my goodness. And he goes, I was completely wrong. He goes, I had it all backward. I thought my friends were my drinking buddies. I didn't have any real friends. I got real friends now. I thought it was all about impressing people. I just need to be real with God and real with others. Yep. Said I was just completely wrong. He discovered what it was like to live as a believer. I hope you'll be with us for the next month. There are a lot of things, just like that college students, we, we, we have completely upside down. And if you and I are in our culture, and if you and I are going to live as believers, we need to get them right side up. We're going to talk about them. The Bible's very clear on them. And some of the things that the world considers foolish are God's wisdom. And God chooses to use people like us to communicate that. And even if we don't feel qualified, we are qualified. Because God's Holy Spirit indwells us, and we have the mind of Christ, and we have his word, and he just wants us to live it out and make it known. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, I want to thank you for biblical wisdom. I want to thank you for the writings of Paul. I want to thank you, Lord, that he, he took time to write these instructions to the people in Corinth. They were a young church living in a world that didn't share their values. And Father, we're a young church, and our culture is drifting farther and farther away from you by the second. So God, I just want us to be genuine article Christians, real Christians. If you would like to live a genuine faith, would you pray that right now and say, God, I want to be a real Christian. I want to live out my faith in such a way that people would believe in you, 
Not because they're impressed with me, but they're impressed with what you've done in me. Father, I pray that you'd remind us that the message of the cross is foolishness to people who aren't ready yet to surrender their lives. They think that power and pleasure, having nice stuff is what life is all about. And Father, we get a chance to show something else. And I pray that we will. And Father, I pray that we won't give up on people. I'm glad people didn't give up on us. Would you pray for someone right now who's far away from God? Maybe a cousin, maybe a neighbor, somebody who maybe openly mocks the Christian faith. Would you pray that God would touch them? Their heart would be receptive. God loves them. He sent his son to die on the cross for them. Father, would you convince us of the truth of the gospel so we can proclaim it with power as we should? Would you open our minds to what the Bible says? Would you give us a hunger and a thirst for righteousness and a desire to read the Bible every day so we would know your thoughts better? Would you then give us the power to say things at the right moment, at the right time, in the right way? I thank you, Lord, you didn't reserve the ministry just for the people who'd been to the right schools. I thank you, Lord, that you didn't reserve salvation just for the people who are wealthy enough or tall enough or beautiful enough. Lord, I thank you that you came to save everyone and all who call upon your name will be saved. But Father, we live in a world that thinks completely opposite from the way your word teaches on many things. I pray, Lord, that you'd remind us of this and you'd give us courage to face the future unafraid and we'd keep loving people even if they don't love us back and we'd pray for people often. When we have the opportunity, we'd open our mouths and share encouragement and wisdom from your word. We pray these things together in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.